express how much uh, this church has meant to me um, through my years here. Uh, I know I haven't been here that incredibly long, uh, but you guys have shown such um, grace and kindness that's undeserved and undue, and it's been all very well appreciated. And I will, again, be very sad, uh, Brittany, also to leave this place. Um, But we hope, of course, to make sure we'll return at some point. So Psalm chapter 1, and the main, kind of this verse has a great conclusion at the end of chapter 6, or excuse me, at the end of verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. Um, Last week, Daniel opened up with a song, a modern song, and made me think there's an old song by the police. Um, I, I forget um, what's the name of the song exactly, um, but it's Every Step You Take, I'll Be Watching You, right? And at first, it kind of sounds like a, a nice song, you know? Oh, he's going to be, like, watching over her and taking care of her. And then the more you listen to it, every step you take, every move you make, you realize it's actually kind of a creepy song. <laughs> he's, it's, it's almost kind of a stalker-like song. Um, we see this, but we kind of see this in other songs too, right? The old Santa's song, you know, song about Santa Claus is coming to town. Um, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And again, it's kind of this uneasy feeling, but we see that there's kind of in us this kind of hardwired understanding that someone is watching us. Someone is paying attention to the things we do be them good or bad. And what we see in this psalm is at the very end here that the Lord is watching. And that can be either a very comforting fact or a very terrifying fact. And what this psalm will do, it's going to set out for us two paths of two different types of men. The one will be the blessed man, and we'll see later on in verse 6 that he's described as a righteous man. And the second man will be that of the sinful man. And it's going to show kind of a a juxtaposition, a contrast, if you will, between these two men. On the one hand, again, the righteous, and on the other hand, the wicked man. So as we take a look into it, the first verse, we'll start to talk about the righteous man. It says, blessed is the man who, and right there we even have to stop and think, because we're going to see this blessed man He is blessed on account of the things he does. A lot of the other translations might say, happy is the man who... But even so, it's happy is the man who does these certain things. And right there, it's this is kind of a notion of what's typically known as common grace, right? We've, We've heard this term used before in churches, and we've heard it before. Brian's used it from the pulpit. Certain actions will produce certain results. We see this a lot of times in the Old Testament. And it shouldn't really shock us, right? You can have the most wicked, um, the most vile of wretched men, and if he takes a certain amount of money from his paycheck every week and sets it aside in the bank, eventually his account's going to grow. It's not because the Lord is necessarily bestowing on him some amazing favor that he hasn't on other people, it's just wise common sense, right? If um, an athlete or an artist practices a skill day after day, we see this in most of our celebrities, most of our athletes. 
they're not good at what they do just because the Lord has blessed them with these amazing talents, um, and though he has, but they've also practiced at it, right? They've put in the time, they've put in the skill. So when we see that the Psalms say that a blessed is a man who does X, Y, and Z, or in this case will not do X, Y, and Z, that shouldn't necessarily jolt us. Even though we want to think, well, salvation's not of works, and we'll, see, we'll get to that, of course. Our salvation and our blessings don't come from um, our own works necessarily, but we will see that we, the Old Testament has these notions of just common grace. Um, again, we see this in other passages, such as Proverbs. We see it all the time in Proverbs. Just a small example would be uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, right? It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So, plain and simple, right? If you're in an argument with someone and you use kind words, it can usually... Uh, abate the situation, whereas if you're in an argument and you use harsh words, it's going to make it worse. So these are just these notions of common grace, um, and they should not surprise us. So as blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. So there's three things that it shows us that he does not do. And if you'll notice, there's kind of a progression with him, right? So blessed is man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, or excuse me, in the counsel of the wicked. So he's in no way, he doesn't even walk in their midst. He's a, a blessed man, doesn't, doesn't deal with them, and he doesn't stand with them. So, and he doesn't sit with them. There's a greater, greater progression of identification. So he's at one point, he's not even really around them. He doesn't make his company with them, and he's sure doesn't sit down with them, right? And so we see this kind of progression here. And this is what makes this man blessed, right? Is that he does not do these things. Um, And it'd be very easy when we come to these passages and we read them to kind of do them in a, to understand it in a don't do this, don't do that kind of manner, right? Um, I I grew up in churches where this was preached all the time. As soon as the uh, pastor would have got to this point in the sermon, the points would have been, don't go to the movies, uh, you know, don't, definitely don't go near a bar, don't do all these things, right? You know, uh, the old adage, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go, or go with girls who do, right? <laughs> I've been trying to get Brittany to stop chewing, but she's from Kentucky. Some old habits die hard. But again, it'd be very easy when we come to this to, to kind of apply it to our life in that manner, Right? We want to be able to apply it and just say, well, Christianity can be easily reduced from the, in the Bible right here to I should not do these things. And that would be a very great and easy way to preach it if it wasn't for one big problem. That's Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 11, after messengers had come uh, from John the Baptist, Jesus then turns and he speaks to the crowd. In verse 18, he says, for John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, right? So John the Baptist lives this very very disciplined lifestyle, eating nothing but locusts and wild honey. And we're all familiar with John the Baptist. He's kind of this um, very, I I almost want to say eccentric type looking character, very, very different from his contemporaries. Right? And they said, then he says in verse 19, But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, 
And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what's the alleged accusation against our own Lord? Is that he's a drunkard and he, he's with the sinners and he's, he's eating and he's drinking and he's a glutton. So the very allegations against our Lord is that he is exactly like them. He seems to identify with those who are the outcasts, with those who are the sinners, with those who are the wicked. And notice how Jesus, Jesus doesn't respond to these allegations as, well, you know, that's just not true. You guys are making lies. It's very clear and obvious. Jesus does identify with these people. He does make, you know, he's with them all the time. And we see this throughout the Gospels. Um, he kind of, you know, he's not putting, uh, he's not hanging out with the good kids at school. So he spent so much time in their midst that he is identified with them. And that's kind of a hard balance for us to get. Because we have one point where we're being told a blessed man is a man who doesn't do these things. But yet we see the very own son of God kind of seems to be doing these things, right? It's, it seems very obvious. And we're left with this tension of how then do we live as Christians where there's a command and there's a call to be holy, to be separate, to be a peculiar people, uh, as it says. There's this command to be separate and to be set apart, but yet at the same time, there's also this command and there's this example set by our very own Lord, which says we need to be out and about with the sinners and we need to be out and about with those who are who don't come to church every Sunday with those who are, who care nothing about the word of God, who care nothing about his kingdom. And, and we're left with this very, uh, very hard contrast and a, a very hard tension. But if we just sit here at verse one, without looking down to verse two, we're, we are going to be stuck in that tension. There will be no way out. But in verse two kind of lies the key. And take a look where it says, the max, so the blessed man's actions are put into the negative in the first verse. Those are the things he doesn't do. But in verse 2, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the primary characterization of a happy man, of this righteous man in contrast to the wicked, is that he has a desire and he has a love for the laws and for the statutes of God. I think this is pretty well exemplified in Jesus as Christ being the incarnate word of God and all. Right? So the psalmist here refers right to the law of the Lord. So he refers to sometimes what's known as the Torah. And it says the blessed man seeks and loves after the Lord's laws. And again, here we have to be careful. This can't be misconstrued as a type of uh, legalism, if you will. This can't be misconstrued where our salvation is worked or our favor is earned. And this is the exact problem of we see the Pharisees and we'll see of the rabbis later on. Is that they understood the law of the Lord to be nothing more than a do this, do that type of mentality. Don't do this, do this, and everything will be all right. And you're going to procure, procure the Lord's favors and he's going to love you and everything's going to go really, really well. Um, we even see this in the Psalter itself, even if you turn to Psalm 51, that this, that's uh, just a wrong thinking that's not condoned by the Bible. 
The psalmist cries out in 51, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice. He's speaking to the Lord. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And what does he say then? So we see those, he's kind of turning the whole Old Testament notion that God, God is pleased in sacrifices though, right? He is pleased when the people would make atonement for their sins. But the psalmist is going against is this legalistic mentality of, well, I gave my sacrifice to the temple, thus I'm done. Lord is happy with me. Everything is hunky-dory. What does he say in uh, verse 17? He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord does not delight in sacrifices, but in the next verse, he delights in a broken heart. In other words, he delights in repentance. So throughout the Old Testament, it's very hard when we look a lot of times at the laws of like Leviticus. And let's face it, it's a hard book to sometimes read through. It's kind of laborious when you get to it, to read through all these sacrificial laws. And then we see the way many of um, the other people have interpreted. And they're just focused on, well, if I do this and I do that, everything's going to be all right. And as long as I obey the, you know, the covenant to every little T... Everything's going to be all right. But that's clearly, we even see in the Old Testament, that is not the focus of what the Old Testament is about. That's not what God's trying to show them. He's trying to show them he delights in a broken and a contrite heart, which will result ultimately in them giving sacrifice. Right? This would result in them, they would ultimately, because they realize the weight and the depth of their sin, they'll ultimately go and do and obey the Lord's laws. Um, Again, we see Jesus even later on in his day will condemn this kind of teaching. We see in Matthew chapter 3, he um, kind of attacks, if you will, the Pharisees for for ignoring the weighty issues of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what are they concerned about? They're concerned with how much of their mint they should tithe, right? So they're willing to reject the orphan and reject the widow, and they're, they're more worried about, well, I have, you know, a pound of mint. How much of it do I have to give to the priest? Because that's how God's going to be happy with me. Ignoring, though, to have this broken and contrite heart and to care for those for whom the Lord cares. The, the orphan and the widow. We've seen this on, on Wednesday nights. God is our, uh, as we've been going through the Apostle Creed, it says, I believe in God the Father. He's a caring and loving God. And they were willing to... Ignore all those aspects, and they were willing to ignore every part of that law in order just to, uh, to worry about how much mint they should tithe. They had it backwards. And then in 1 John 3.23, we'll see that we're given even a fuller definition of the law, which is to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and to love one another. So when, again, when we come to these passages and we see well, he needs to delight in the law of the Lord. We can't understand it in that legalistic. We can't understand it in that very rule-oriented manner. And even though there are conditions and there are manners of living the Christian life, we can't come to it and just see it as a do this, do, a don't do that mentality. We have to understand it for what it all is. That yes, there are things we should do and there are things from which we should abstain, but we have to be coming to it with a correct and with a, a right heart. And we'll see, he doesn't just meditate on it, right, just once a day. 
or once a week. It says, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And this is another theme we see kind of throughout the whole Old Testament. There's, there's this notion of a continual meditation on God's law. Uh, we see this most prominently in Deuteron- Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 7, coming right off of the heels of the great Shema, uh, the hero Israel. And he says, You shall teach them diligently. That's the laws of the Lord. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is Moses again speaking to the whole congregation that's assembled there. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Basically, from the moment you get up to the moment you lie down, this law of the Lord needs to be on your heart. I think the psalmist here is capturing that same essence, maybe not necessarily alluding to it directly, but he's capturing the same essence we see in the Old Testament. We see the same ideas picked up also in Proverbs uh, chapter 6, uh, 20 through 22, where the, um, Solomon here seems to be almost alluding to it directly, where he will say, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, what is he talking about? Who's that they? When when you walk, they, who's the they who will lead you? The laws of your father and your mother. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Again, there's this notion that we need to be dwelling. The righteous man is not just one who um, at one gets up, reads his Bible, closes it, and he's done for the day. But rather, this is a continual and a, a day-by-day, a moment-by-moment aspect where he's concerned and where he's thinking about the laws of the Lord. And I hardly have any experience to speak on child rearing. In fact, I have none, thankfully. Um, (laughs) But I can know as a child myself, which I'm still there, I think, at some days, the parents, and we see this in Deuteronomy, play such an important role in establishing this idea of continual meditation. Right? My parents aren't theologians. My parents have no... Uh, formal training in any of these matters. But they were faithful to attend church. They showed respect for the word of God. And the expectation of Christian living were norms in our household. So it's not that my parents taught, you know, saved me or anything, but they established early on um, in my life that this is how a Christian is supposed to act. A Christian should be concerned about these things. A Christian, when the church is, you know, um, when there's activity going on, and not necessarily saying if you didn't come on a Sunday night all of a sudden, you know, you're a bad Christian, but there was that expectation of being involved in the congregation. There was this expectation of reading your Bible and this expectation of talking about the things of the Lord. And sometimes it wasn't necessarily always in a structured manner. I know a lot of families do... Uh, family devotions, and that's a wonderful and amazing thing. Uh, my family never did that, but there was on a car ride with my dad, we would talk about these things, sometimes in a really deep manner, sometimes in a not-so-deep manner. 
but it was there and it was present so that it couldn't necessarily escape my mind. And, and that's just an encouragement to parents that even when your children might appear disinterested in the things of God, as I know I did often, um, it's an exhortment just to continue to live a faithful life. Parents play a primary role in instilling the light for the things of God in the hearts of their children. They play the key role, really, in establishing this idea of continual meditation. And again, we see that this light's not only on Sunday morning. It's an all-day, every day, you know, 24-7, 365. And it's easy to love the laws and statutes of God while we're gathered here as people of God. It's very easy to have them on our hearts and our minds. Um, And without doubt, though, our gatherings here are also meant to encourage us and to bolster us in the faith. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 tells us that, that one purpose of the church is to provoke each other to love and good works and to exhort each other in the faith. So there's even um, this congregation, the church as a whole body, is designed to help us continue in this daily meditation. So again, this is how the blessed man lives his life, right? His life is marked by integrity and by holiness, which is not found primarily in the things from which he abstains, but rather primarily in what he does. And thus, because of his character, his whole life is characterized in a certain way. So if verse 1 and verse 2 kind of looked at the nitty-gritty of his life, his day, what he does actually day by day, uh, so verse 3 looks at his, his life as a whole, as an entire characteristic. So for the blessed man, the overarching way for describing his life, uh, I would say is prosperity and stability. And we see this in uh, the simile that's used here. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields, for, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does is prosper. So he's described as a tree, right, planted by rivers of water. I'm no farmer, but you need water to help plants grow, right? And this idea is, if you imagine like the Judean countryside, is a very desert, very desolate area. And the picture is that of a somewhat arid land with a small river flowing through it and a tree that's just blossoming. That's how this man is depicted. He is depicted in complete opposition to all that's around him. And as the metaphor continues, you can see, so his fruit grows right in its season, his leaf doesn't wither, and almost as if the author couldn't just exhaust all the, the metaphor just breaks down, and he just says everything he does prospers. Basically, all this guy does is going to work. And we, couldn't, we can also let ourselves now be fooled, and we should not, to believing that the televangelist and his brand-new Mercedes, the private jets, the tailor suits, those are not the litmus test of a holy living. So as before, in common grace, found in wisdom, will make right actions into, into good success. However, the blessedness of this man goes way beyond that of material gain. So how do we reconcile this portrait of a righteous man with what we see in life? Paul, the very apostle himself in 2 Corinthians, lists his various trials, shipwrecks, lashes, dangers of being killed by Jews and Gentiles. Uh, When we read Psalm 1, that's not our expectation. We read Psalm 1, and our idea of what it means to be blessed isn't to be living in Iraq with the fear of your children being killed. It isn't to be... uh, this just continual fear that many of those Christians have endured now. It isn't the fear that your government will turn on you. That's not what we anticipate. But yet that's exactly the kind of blessedness 
that, this, uh, that these people are and that this psalm is describing. They have no concern for material gains, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. Their delight is in Christ himself and the expectation and hope that he will come. And our own Lord again tells his followers in Matthew 6 not to seek after earthly riches, but rather have our hearts set on those heavenly riches. And when we seek after God by delighting in him and his statutes, what's going to happen is that our own desires are transformed. No longer should the base things of this world entice us. They do. We're still sinful and we still struggle with our sin. But no longer will those things be kind of the delight of our eyes. So we've seen that the blessed man, he's called blessed as reflected in his actions. So what he does not do and what he does. And because of this, he has this whole characteristic of a life that is marked by love for the law of God. And it's marked by stability and it's marked by prosperity. So, and the stability is not again in our daily routine. It is in our daily routine, but it's a stability that comes from having peace of Christ. And it's a stability that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven in him. And next it will go on to describe the wicked man. And it says, even though I say um, wicked man, if you'll notice in the text, it just says the wicked are not so. The first point of contrast between the wicked and the righteous is there's a lot more wicked than there are righteous. There's only one blessed man, but there's a multitude of wicked. And so we see here, um, now not a whole lot is really explained about the wicked man, right? So it just says, the wicked are not so. That's their character. Everything that the blessed man is, they are not. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. The wicked man has no concern for it. The blessed man doesn't go along with the wicked, doesn't go along with the ungodly. He doesn't listen and heed their advice. The wicked man eats it up. He loves every moment of it. And that's the only way to describe his counsel, his character, excuse me, is that everything he is is the exact opposite of what a blessed man is supposed to be. They have no regard for the love, for the law of God, and they have no regard for his Messiah. And then we'll see his outcome. So we saw the, the outcome of the, the, um, the blessed man is that he's like a tree. And we see the outcome then of the wicked man. It says... But they, um, but the wicked, are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And we see that there's kind of this another metaphor kind of applied, right? So the blessed man is this tree. The wicked man is simply put chaff that's just blown about. And we, we want to come to this and we really just want to say, right, amen and amen, right? So the wicked man is just this wicked man and he, he's blown away and the Lord will eventually have nothing to do with him. And that's easy to identify with if, we, if our only understanding of a wicked man is that of the drug dealer and that of the prostitute. And it's that of all the greedy businessman who, who destroys, um, you know, lives of people by using... Um, uh, of um, bad means of obtaining money. Um, but that's not the biblical portrait of what a wicked man is, right? It says the wicked are those who have no regard for the law of God. That's what it, he's just everything that the blessed man is. That's a much wider portrait when we start to include those who live down the street from us, those with, you know, the, the father has a good stable job, the, they have a good marriage, they have nice kids, Everything seems to be going pretty well for them. Everything seems to be 
not bad. They don't seem to fit our definition of what it means to be wicked. And yet they fall into this category too because they openly refuse to worship their creator and they pay no regard for his law and for his words. Or we see it in the the lives of those who live these licentious lifestyles, all these people who are paraded around on our magazine covers, uh, who are paraded around on these stupid reality TV shows. And we kind of think to ourselves, is that what it means to be blown about like chaff? To have new cars and to have people adoring you for doing nothing? That doesn't seem to be our idea of what it means to be blown about like chaff. That's a terrible... We, we look at that and we see injustice. And we shouldn't let our hearts become like that. Uh, this, and this has even been asked in Job. He asked in uh, chapter 21, he says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? It seems so contrary to our understanding of justice. And we're in a terrible position when we allow our sense of justice and we allow our sense of right to trump what God's sense of justice is. But he makes our punishment pretty clear in verse 5. Their outcome is that they are eventually cut off and they are not able to stand during judgment. A major tenet of the Christian faith is the inevitable judgment that will befall every man. And we can rejoice in this statement. It seems terrible to rejoice in it, but we can rejoice knowing that God will finally make an end to sin and to those who perpetuate it. This statement also, though, spurns us on to tell the wicked of the impending judgment and their inability to remain during it. We don't, again, this is, it kind of just goes against our whole sense of justice. It goes against everything that we know to be right, but we need to let our understanding be conformed to God and how he reveals it to us. And not only does the inevitable judgment await them, we also see, but also part of that judgment is being cut off from the congregation of the righteous. And that doesn't sound like the worst punishment, at least to them, because they already want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with the righteous. So what's the problem? Why, why would that be so terrible for them? Being cut off, though, from the righteous and being cut off from the congregation means being cut off from the very God whom the righteous worship. To be cut off means that they will no longer have fellowship and no longer have a chance, uh, if you will, of fellowship with, the very, with their very own creator. Again, our Savior speaks of this in Matthew 13 after explaining the parables of the tares and the pearls and the fish and how there is inevitable judgment. He says in verse 49, the angels will come and take out the wicked from the righteous. So there is, we have to remember, there is this notion in the scripture that the righteous and the wicked will eventually be separated. And then even think about our situation here on earth. To be part of the righteous means to be what? In union with Christ. And this is why we don't allow anyone who doesn't profess, profess to be a, a believer in Christ to join the church. That's, that's an important detail that we need to make sure we understand. The church is a place for the redeemed. Of course, it doesn't mean that we don't invite people to church. It doesn't mean we, we don't let them sit in the pews. But there is this very real sense in which the, they, they cannot join the church because they have not come into union with Christ. And in a very real way, being a part of this community means having those who are dead in their sins separated. And this is why, again, we don't share communion with them. Um, 
And this foreshadow, this separation here, this separation of not letting them join the, not letting those who have not come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the separation that we create here is a very real, I think, foreshadowing of the separation that's to come. To, re- to not repent of sin and to come to faith in Christ means to have the wrath of God abiding on your head. And while church, um, and church membership by no means saves us, it does publicly display a reality that we have been redeemed and that we have called out from among the wicked and that they are separated from us. So both groups have present- been presented, the righteous man and the wicked man. And again, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil of the good. And we'll see in verse 6, it's that their fate, depending on who you are, that idea that the Lord is beholding what we do will bring us either to fear or to rejoicing. So building on the previous verses, verse 6 summarizes, and the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Doesn't leave us with much, right? There's no call down the aisle. Just as I am doesn't start playing once we get to the end of this verse. No impassioned plea is given here. Psalter just ends right there with this staunch truth in this first psalm. The Lord knows, and those who go the way of the wicked will perish. For a book of praises, this is kind of a weird way to begin. Don't you think? This is a book that's meant to, it's, the psalms are meant to be psalms, and they're meant to praise God and it just ends with this really kind of hard truth. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, one of the things Brian said uh, for a number of weeks, and I love it, is the Bible's a mirror. And when we come to it, we need to see with whom we most identify. And we want to look at this passage, right, and say, I identify with who? The blessed man. Right? I go to church. I'm part of the blessed man, right? I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. But do we always love the law of God? Do we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength all day, all the time? Do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Are we more concerned with the kingdom of God than we are with our own kingdoms that we're building here on earth? We have no desire in our sinful flesh to do any of these things. And we have to examine ourselves and we have to seek, again, with whom we most identify. And when we do that, and when we look at our own actions, when we look at our own lives, we see we identify most ultimately with the wicked. And the wicked are the ones who are deserving of punishment. We too find ourselves deserving of punishment. We too realize that in our own state, in our own flesh, we are just as much an enemy of God as the drug dealer and the prostitute. We are just as much as wicked as the rest. And therein lies the glory of the cross. That Christ himself took the punishment of sin for whoever submits to him. And it doesn't only end there. It's not that he just took our, he took our guilt and then he's done. But he stands before the Father as the truly blessed man. The blessed man in here doesn't represent us. It represents the one with whom we're in union. It's Christ himself. He stands as the perfect law keeper. He stands 
as the one who took the punishment that we deserve. And our lives are hidden in Christ, so what becomes true of him will also become true of us. So this text uh, forces us to examine ourselves. And before we can continue any further on in the Psalter, before we can continue singing the praises of God, we have to read this, stop, look at our own selves and go, where am I in this passage? Again, we see we identify with the wicked, but we have a Savior who identifies with the blessed man, for he is the truly blessed man. And we know that the Lord is watching what we do. But the great part is that he doesn't see us. He sees Christ. And he sees what he's done on the cross. He sees the life he lived, the life that we, he lived the life we could not live, and he died the death, death we deserved. That's a powerful statement. And that's a real reality if we've come to repentance and faith in Christ. We'll close this out in prayer.